Okay, ladies. Well, um, I am so honored to have this chance to be able to speak to you. It's no secret. I love to talk and I love to perform. Um, but this is so different. Um, when I open up the scripture, when I open up the word of God, it is so humbling. I am nervous. I never get nervous. Um, so if you would just be praying for me throughout this, um, just that the Lord would use what I have to say and really take it to another level because only he can do that. You know, I, I've put in the time, I've prepared as much as I can, but only God can take it to a place where it really penetrates hearts and lives, including mine. Um, so what I'd like you to do is, if you could, write down on a piece of paper or something you have in front of you just something you're going through. It could be a choice you have at work or maybe a trial you're facing, maybe a situation with a family member, but just kind of tangibly write down something that's going on in your life. What's going on in your life? Maybe it's something in the inner corners of your heart that you haven't even shared with anyone. Or maybe it's nothing. <laughs> maybe you're just kind of like, I'm a mom, I don't know. But something that's going on. And throughout this time, just kind of be glancing at that and asking yourself questions throughout this lesson. How does God's sovereignty apply to this scenario? How does God's sovereignty apply to this scenario? While you're doing that, I'm going to share with you a little bit of a personal story, so I hope you're ready to get to know me a little better. Um, three weeks ago, I got an alert on my phone, and it was my friendly reminder that my period was supposed to start. Um, so, no big deal. I'm used to the drill by now. Uh, so, I texted Blake, had him bring home some chocolate, had the Motrin ready, good to go. But um, the day comes and goes, and there's no period. Okay, no big deal, free day for me. Uh, moving on to Friday, though, day comes and goes, still no period. Okay, not overly normal for me because I tend to be really regular. I feel really weird telling you guys this story, <laughs> but we're going to, like I said, get to know each other. Um, but yeah, and, and there was nothing, um, but we've been sick. You know, Blake broke his arm. I was under some stress, uh, so I just sort of tried to play it off. Uh, Saturday comes, nothing Sunday, I am in a straight panic. I am like, what is happening? I didn't even tell Blake. I'm like, oh, no, because we were definitely not trying to procreate. So I didn't know what to tell him. Um, but after church, I told him, and we you know, got a test, and I am taking the test, and I am sweating, and I'm like, Lord, what is happening? Like, we just, I mean, Eva's about to be one in a week, and we're finally kind of sleeping through the night. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, everybody's lived through year one, okay? Um, what's going on? But I prayed, and I was like, okay, Lord, no, I know that you're sovereign, and whatever happens, it's going to be okay. You know, it's going to be okay. So I look at the test, and I breathe, and it's negative. It's negative. It's negative. What else could you be five days late on a period other than pregnant. So of course, that puts me in the tailspin. I start Googling WebMD. Any WebMD people out there? Yes, okay. So like three hours later, I am like sobbing. I think I have things from ovarian cancer to like I'm gonna have to take the womb completely out. It's, it's a mess. And I knew, the worst part is, is I knew I was teaching on God's sovereignty. But I was like, Maybe, maybe he missed this one. Maybe he missed this part. So I'm like, okay, I have no hard facts. We'll just keep going, see what happens. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 
six negative tests later and 15 days late at this point, and I have lost it. I, I am struggling because I was struggling not to feel like a hypocrite. Like, I know God has a plan, right? You guys have been there. You know God has a plan. But, like, this was not, maybe he didn't, he didn't mean this part to be part of the plan. And what I love about the Bible is that we see real characters going through these real things just like you and I, and we can relate to them. So I want to look at the first chapter of Ruth and kind of talk about some of these preliminary characters and how they dealed or dealt with the sovereignty of God. So if you look at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I'm just going to start reading because it's kind of a lot and I don't want to be too long. But it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malan and Chilion, and they were Ephratites from Bethlehem. Okay, so like Ms. Heather talked about today, when I first read that, I just sort of blew past all that, and I was like, okay, I don't have any idea what that means. But uh, I live with a pastor, so he challenged me to go a little deeper. Um, and there's a lot packed into those first two verses. We have this stage that's going to be set here for our story, and I'm a theater person, so I like to study the Bible as I would study like a play. So we have our characters that are introduced. We have our family. We have the dad, who is Elimelech. I almost forgot his name. <laughs> Elimelech. And then we have the wife, Naomi, and the two sons, Malin and Chilion. And they're living in Bethlehem, which at the time, um, they were undergoing a famine. So I don't know what you know about the days of the judges, but back then during that time, there was this kind of vicious cycle of they would, the children of Israel, they would sin, and then God would chastise them or correct them. Then there'd be repentance, restoration, sin, chastisement, repentance. Right? It was like this whole thing, kind of like we do all the time. Um, but the story of Ruth is happening during one of those times. And oftentimes God would use famine as a means of chastising his children or getting their attention. So we have this family living in Bethlehem, physically going under a famine or starvation, ironically, the town of Bethlehem means house of bread. So I thought that was a fun fact. Um, but they are in this dilemma. They are here, and Elimelech, as the leader of the household, has to make this decision. Do we stay? Do we stay here in Bethlehem and sort of figure out what the Lord's trying to teach us? Do we undergo this moment? Or do we move 50 miles east to Moab? Did we hear anything about moving east this morning? Anybody remember that? Anything about Moab? <laughs> yeah, it kind of gave away my story. Um, yeah, so, you know, he, he weighs the facts, and we can see his character sort of unfold in these first couple of moments. You know, he asks the questions, what's, what's the economy going to be like, and, and how much food is there going to be? And he kinda, we see him process these things, and he decides, you know what, let's just go. Let's just move to Moab, which at first, if you hadn't come this morning, seems like no big deal. But Moab was a city that was a direct descendant of Lot and his ancestral relationship with his daughter. So they were known for being a spiritually perverse and a morally perverse city. They were definitely anti-Christian. And we see the character of Elimelech. He took his family from where they would be, yes, physically starving, but he took them to a place, without weighing the spiritual cost, to a place where they would be spiritually starving. 
They didn't have any church community. They didn't have any Christian support. Who were his sons going to marry? Who was his wife going to go to in hard times? And we see that he kind of makes a spiritual immature decision in haste just to alleviate that physical, that physical persecution. But let's move on. We're talking about God's sovereignty, right? So that seems like a big mistake here in the 21st century because we can look at it from afar. But let's see what, what happens. So in verse 3 it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with her two sons. Okay, yikes. He did all that. He processed all the things. He moves to avoid physical death, and then he dies. Kind of not looking good for my concept of sovereignty. <laughs> um, but what do we learn from this? That life and death, that's all in the hands of the Lord. And if we just trust him and make those spiritual, concrete decisions, his will will come to fruition. But, I mean, he's not set his family up for success. And here we see character number two. So we had Elimelech. Now we have character number two, Naomi. And Naomi kind of becomes the leading lady of this chapter. But she's left with her two sons. And back in that time, having two sons, that would have been the next best thing for survival. So let's see if the sons step up and make good decisions. Here we have, in verse 4, these took Moabite wives, the name of the one Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. Okay, so we're seeing kind of a family pattern here. They're just kind of spiraling out of control. God's people were definitely not to marry Moabite women. What, somebody have an idea why that would not be a good idea for a Christian man to marry a Moabite woman? Where would there be conflict? Yeah. Yeah, they were anti-Christian. They didn't worship the same God. There would be different worldviews, different philosophies. And, and this looks like a pretty bad situation. So as we continue, God's people in this moment are kind of living in disobedience. But did this all catch God by surprise? Can he course correct this family? In verse 5 we see, They lived there about ten years, and Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, so Naomi is in about the worst situation you could possibly think of at this point. She has no husband. She has no sons. Can you imagine, first of all, having to bury your husband? And then having to bury not one, but both of your sons. And then not being in a Christian community, not having any family, not having any support, not having people to pour into your life, to, to steer your heart and your spirit back to the Lord. She has nothing. She has nothing. But let's see what happens. In verse 6, um, it says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she, heard in the, for she heard while she was in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And it's here that I am so excited to get to this part of the story. It's because the Lord is finally introduced as the hero of this story. He steps in, and he has now brought that physical and spiritual restoration back to the people in Bethlehem. And in his sovereignty, knowing that God is good and that he has a plan, in his sovereignty, he knew that that provision, that moment of physical provision in Bethlehem and spiritual restoration would begin to draw Naomi's heart back to where she needed to be, restoring not only her, but the people of Israel. So it says that in verse, 
Yes, in verse 6. Okay, so they were in the fields of Moab, and the Lord had visited his people, and they had spiritual restoration, and they were physically, or they were spiritually brought back. Verse 7 through 13. So they set out from the place where they were, and the two, and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And then there's a whole chunk here where they have a dialogue between her and, and Ruth and Orpah, and she is at her emotional and spiritual low. She looks at the girls, and she is done. And I feel like this is the moment where I can relate to Naomi the most. She looks at the girls, and she says, girls, I have nothing for you. I have nothing for you. If I were to go back tonight and be blessed and have a husband and have sons, and they were to grow, I mean, that's just not going to happen. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. Let me just go back to Bethlehem and, and die, basically. And isn't that one of the first things that we do when we're undergoing a trial? We want to isolate ourselves. Do you think the enemy uses that as a way to get us away from God's people even more? It's like, they won't know. It doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. It's just too much. And she's feeling overwhelmed, and she retreats. And it's really clear here that we see Naomi is just bitter. She's bitter and emotionally done. I have some key phrases that I wanted to get to here. And she says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord. She's not only bitter, she sees God as the enemy. She blames him. Instead of seeing God as the good God who's sovereign and has a good plan, she sees her affliction as cruel and unjust. Instead of blaming the enemy for the evil that's in the world and the bad things that happened, she blames God. Instead of seeing him as her redeemer and sovereign God, she sees him as a cruel Lord who just allows bad things to happen for no reason. Ever been there? I know I have. And it's not something we're supposed to say out loud, is it? We're not supposed to question the sovereignty of God. But sometimes we do. But the thing we need to remember is that God is sovereign and he is also good. You can't have one without the other. If you do, you end up with an insufficient view of God. You see God is in control, but that he just allows things to happen to you for no good reason. And that's just not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign and good, and he will work everything out for good and his ultimate glory. So listen to me. There is no choice that a Christian could make that catches him off guard. There is no decision that you could make that he is not able to course correct or redeem for his glory. Do you hear me? There is no tear wasted. There is no suffering for, for no reason. There is no hardship haphazardly allowed into our lives. But Naomi forgets this. Instead of asking herself this question, and I think it's a question that God really wanted me to hear, how is this? Whatever's written on your paper, this moment of decision, this trial, this hardship, how is this being used of you to sanctify me, to cause me to love you more, to bring you glory? She just blames him. But let's back off of Naomi for a little bit. We're going to move on to our third character in verse 14 and 15. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her gods and her people. Return after your sister-in-law. So poor Orpah, right? We get like two verses about her. And um, 
it's not much, but honestly, it's really all we kind of need. The Bible says she basically was an observer of Christianity. Ever met someone who was kind of like an observer of Christianity? Like maybe they sat next to you in work and they were like, wow, your life seems really good. I'll come to church with you. I'll get the free tickets. You know, they, they kind of want the good stuff and they're, they have this idea that Christianity is going to fix all their problems, like their marriage or their kids aren't going to get kicked out of private school, you know. But then they get into it and they realize, like, it's not just magic and rainbows. You know, God's not a God like that. He's in the nitty-gritty. It's personal. And so then when the hard times come, she just kind of backs out. She goes to the next thing that's new and exciting, and she goes back to her old gods and her old ways. She never truly had a conversion moment. But we'll move on. Verse 16 and 18. But Ruth, (laughs) do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. You guys have heard this, right? We heard it in the song. She did a beautiful job singing about it. (laughs) Finally, someone's in their winning season, right? She's been a Christian for maybe like five minutes, according to this timeline. But honestly, it's such a beautiful picture of how we should respond when we are faced with hardship. I mean, think about it. In this conversion moment, it's not like things were easy for her. She also lost her husband, didn't she? Yeah, she had no children, which would mean she had no means of survival. She had, uh, oh, she was moving to um, Bethlehem where she would not have been accepted. Remember, the people of Bethlehem did not like the Moabites, so there probably would have been some racial persecution there. She had really nothing going for her, and yet in full and utter abandon, she knew one thing. In this conversion moment, she said, you know what? I'm going to Bethlehem because I know that's where God is, and I know that's where he's providing for his people. Do you see God's sovereign hand there? Because he was providing, it drew them. It drew their hearts. All right, so we're wrapping things up here in verse 19. They're headed back to Bethlehem. And this I found to be, I guess, kind of funny, not really funny, but I don't know. Um, They get to Bethlehem, and everybody knows they're coming. Anybody have any idea how word traveled back then? I don't. I have no idea how, like, the whole town would have known that Naomi was coming back, but they did because it said the whole town came out to meet them. Can you imagine? Picture yourself in your most, like, worst state spiritually ever been there anybody ever had one of those moments and then your whole church community imagine all of southern hills rushing to meet you like miss heather tell us how are things you know it's like huh so let's see uh let's see what she says okay so in verse 19 so the two of them went to bethlehem and when they came to bethlehem the whole town was stirred because of them and the women said is this naomi that could be, t- depending on how you say it, right, that could be like a little offensive, like, yikes, is that Naomi? <laughs> like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, okay, so, and then she goes, poor, poor Naomi, she goes, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord hath brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty hath brought calamity upon me? Yikes. Well, I think we all knew this probably wasn't going to be like this big testimonial of God and his goodness. But I want to focus on something that's often overlooked. Normally, when we look at this passage, you hear somebody tell you, don't get bitter like Naomi. Get better 
right? And like, okay, there's truth in that. Like, you don't want to get better. But I want to focus on something that I think is a little bit more relevant to where we're at. I want to focus on where she's at and who she's talking to. Who is she surrounded by that she didn't have before in Moab? Christian community. Yeah, God's people. And instead of putting on the front, right? We all know what the front sounds like. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's good. Things are great. My husband's dead. No big deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) what is that phrase? God is good all the time. And, you know, like sometimes I feel like people hide behind that. You know what I'm saying? And those phrases have a time. They have a place. That's not what I'm saying. But she straight up says, Naomi, which, by the way, her name used to translate sweetheart. She turned it into Mara, which means bitter. Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. And she bears her soul to her girls, to her Christian community. She says, look, I, I know I shouldn't be feeling this way, but I just am. What we can assume is a leading member of this Christian society says, I feel like God's taken this from me. I don't feel like he has a plan, and I'm bitter, and I'm mad, and I'm confused, and I'm lost, and I'm frustrated, and I don't know what's going on. And this is where I love how chapter one ends the stage because it sets us up for this beautiful story of God's sovereignty to unfold. I hope you'll finish reading the book of Ruth because I don't have the time to go through the whole book in 20 minutes. But what you will see is in the last verse, it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Harvest a time of plenty, a time of fullness. Harvest was the means that God would use to introduce the character of Boaz. Boaz was a character who was used used by God to display his utter redemption when he physically saves this family from ruin as God saves us from ruin. Do you see his sovereign hand unfold? Do you see how he used the life of Naomi and Ruth to tell his story? God does not allow his people to suffer for no reason. And even Naomi will see that at the end of the book. So where are you? Where are you? Are you a Limelech? You know, are you the person that, like, when you go to make a decision or you're in a trial, you, like, calculate all the facts? But maybe you're not counting the spiritual cost. Or are you Orpah? Are you just maybe an observer of Christianity? not really having allowed the word of God to penetrate your heart? Or are you Ruth? Are you in your winning season, but things are not easy, but you're just desperately clinging to the one truth that you know, and that is that God is sovereign and he has a plan, and we can rest and find hope and peace in that. Or are you Naomi? Are you just done? Did you come to this retreat? And at best, at best, you're like, okay, God is sovereign and he has a plan. But if you're honest with yourself and others, you're doubting that that plan is good. I don't know where you're at. And honestly, I don't know where I'm at. I'd be lying if I told you I was in my Ruth season this whole time because I still don't know why I'm 16 days late on my cycle. And I have more tests next week. 
But I would encourage you that no matter where you're at, that you would run to God, run to his people, talk with someone here, and dive deeper in your understanding of the good and sovereign God that we serve. And like Ruth, allow yourself in full and utter abandon to trust that in time, he will make his way to you.